Podcast. I'm Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Christopher Timmerman. Chris received his PhD in neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London, where he is currently a postdoctoral scientist at the Center for Psychedelic Research. Chris led the first neuroimaging studies on the effects of the potent tryptamine psychedelic DMT on the brain. He is currently studying the effects of DMT on the brain and human consciousness, as well as its potential clinical applications. Chris and I spent most of our time discussing DMT and related psychedelics, including how DMT is normally consumed in both recreational and laboratory contexts, how people describe its effects and what it actually does subjectively, how it compares to psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD in terms of how it works and what effects it has, and whether DMT is an endogenous compound that's actually present in our own bodies. We also talked about Chris's research, and he described how the effects of DMT on patterns of activity in the brain actually look when you look at the data, and what he hopes to learn from his ongoing research, which includes extending the duration of DMT experiences from just a few minutes, like they normally are, to up to 30 minutes in a single session. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. We have both the audio version available in any podcast directory and a video version on YouTube. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. With that, here's my conversation with Chris Timmerman. Chris Timmerman, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, glad to have you. Uh, super excited to talk about your work and the world that you live in as a psychedelic researcher. Can you start off by just telling everyone who you are, where you are, and what you do at a high level? Um, so I'm a postdoc researcher at Imperial College London. Um, thus I live in London. Um, we're actually having a very nice, beautiful day here, which is a uh, fairly unusual. Um, I work at the center for psychedelic research. Uh, I've been there for the past six years. That's also where I did my PhD. My research has focused on the effects of DMT and the human brain, uh, the experience induced by DMT uh, on a broad level and also other aspects related to what you might call psychedelic practice and how to perfect psychedelic practice to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's it. So what's your PhD and what kind of scientist are you? It's in neuroscience and psychology. Um, I'm a psychologist by training, did a master's in neuroscience, and my PhD was in neuropsychopharmacology. I see. So you've done a lot of research on DMT. Can we start off by just describing for everyone what is DMT, the molecule? What kind of psychedelic is it? And maybe compare and contrast it a little bit to other psychedelics that people may have heard about, such as psilocybin, say. DMT is um, what you might call one of the classic psychedelic compounds, uh, that means that its action is due to a specific 
agonist in that specific receptor in the brain, a serotonin receptor in the brain, the serotonin 2A receptor. Uh, and in that way, it has a similar mechanism of action as psilocybin and LSD and also mescaline. Um, it is a naturally occurring psychedelic. It is in many plants. It is in many mammals, in the body of many mammals, including the human body. Uh, therefore, it is, it is an endogenous compound. DMT also has a rich uh, historical and cultural use. It is part of the brew ayahuasca used in the Amazon. Uh, and it is also part of DMT containing snuffs, which has been used in uh, South America and Central America for hundreds, actually thousands of years, some of the evidence says. <laughs> Um, and it is particular DMT in that it induces immersive experiences, uh, meaning that it generates uh, visual imagery that tend to surpass in their immersive quality to that of LSD and psilocybin at regular doses. Uh, some of these immersive experiences feature at times feelings of entering a novel dimension a place that feels more real than this reality and encountering beings or entities. Um, this is subject, subjective experiences, of course. Uh, and in that way, uh, it is a unique psychedelic substance. It can be smoked, usually when it's done recreationally um, or in non-controlled lab environments, people smoke DMT, which tends to give a very short but intense uh, trip. Uh, so people are going into these other novel places, coming in and out of them in a matter of minutes. So it's a classical psychedelic drug, similar in some ways to things like psilocybin. It's interacting with the classic, what people often call the psychedelic receptor in the brain, the serotonin 2A receptor, but it's very different in some ways. So it's this immersive very visual experience, as you described. It's very intense, but short acting. What accounts for that difference between something like DMT and something like psilocybin, where you're talking about minutes of an experience that's very intense, as opposed to hours of something that's intense, but, but not completely immersive in the, in the way mm. that DMT is? Well, the main difference is that it's degraded in the body uh, in a very fast fashion. Um, so we have essentially a, an enzyme in our bodies that degrades DMT, metabolizes it um, quite fast. And maybe that's why our DMT levels are always kept in check, uh, you know, our endogenous DMT levels, because of this enzyme. Um, that doesn't happen with psilocybin or LSD. That is why also DMT is not active when taken orally. And it's eaten. Um, and that's why for ayahuasca, you need a combination of DMT containing plants and the beta carboline containing plants, like the actual ayahuasca vine, that inhibits the destruction of DMT uh, by this enzyme. They got and extends the effects of DMT in time. So that enzyme that breaks down DMT rapidly, monoamine oxidase, is that happening? rapidly with DMT essentially because it's so chemically similar to serotonin 
so that we already we basically already have the enzymatic machinery to break it down because of that similarity. You could say that, yeah. It's a reasonable assumption. I'm not sure if that's exactly the reason why, but uh, it seems like DMT, because it's an endogenous compound, we have homeostatic mechanisms being the mechanisms that keep the balances and the chemicals in our bodies in check. And this enzyme uh, provides that opportunity, essentially, by mm-hmm. keeping DMT levels down. And there's two versions of DMT that people sometimes mention. There's DMT, which is most of what this discussion will focus on. And then there's something called 5-MeO-DMT. Can you briefly just describe the difference between those two compounds? Sure. So both of them are naturally occurring. NN-DMT and 5-methoxy or 5-MeO-DMT. DMT tends to occur and can be extracted from plants and in DMT, while 5-MeO-DMT is primarily found at reasonable doses or psychoactive doses in the bedroom of the Buffalo Alvarez toad, uh, Sonoran Mexican toad. Um, in terms of the kind of effects it produces, they're both short-acting. 5-methoxy-DMT when smoked is a bit more prolonged, some say. And the quality of the experience is um, different, at least from what we know from anecdotal reports. So NNDMT induces this very rich, content-filled experience. Uh, You're seeing a lot of objects. People are engaging with these objects, these entities, these beings, these feelings of inhabiting different places. It's a rich experience. With 5-MeO-DMT, people appear to have a very radical sense of ego dissolution, uh, meaning that this subject-object distinction, which we carry in the world, uh, usually completely dissolves away. Um, And it can be quite extreme to the point that when people are having that experience, many times they feel they're experiencing their own deaths. And it seems to provide an experience in which people are no longer having any sort of reliable content, but having just an experience of a white light and an experience of some, somehow having an experience of everything and nothing at the same time, which is not necessarily something hard to get your head around when you're just hearing that. Uh, so it says that it induces this this very strong ego dissolution experience. So the, the contrast between DMT and 5-MeO-DMT is while both of them are fast acting, one has a lot to do with characters and contents that people experience and an immersed relationship with that content. Whereas in 5-MeO-DMT, it's, it's a massive sort of ego dissolving experience in which people reach to a point in which they no longer experience any content whatsoever. And they just have this experience of the white light Mm -hmm. So DMT, in terms of its subjective effects, is reported to be very rich in in content, as you say. People literally see stuff. It's very immersive. I've heard it described as almost like an extremely compelling and extremely bizarre virtual reality experience. Can you talk a little bit more about the common threads that come out of people's reports of the subjective effects, just so that we can sort of 
paint a picture to the best of our ability of what the subjective effects are for people that haven't experienced it. And I want to do that before we get into uh, brain stuff. So it's very fast acting. There's lots of content. It's very compelling content, whatever exactly that means. And there's a lot going on in the DMT experience. Are there any common themes to the visual aspects of the subjective experience that tend to come out in reports? What we found in our research is that the, the experience, um, you know, from what you can think of experience from a structural perspective or a content perspective. From a structural perspective, uh, we mapped out that this experience has a, you know, it involves the body, uh, the visual sort of perception, and emotional contents, broadly speaking. These are the three main structural domains that are affected. What we find that it's a reliable aspect of the experience when we give it intravenously is that people have this, at the beginning of the experience, a strong sense of energy, uh, bodily rush happening in their bodies. Um, many people who have other sort of experiences uh, with uh, yoga and kundalini and things of the sort liken it to a form of kundalini sort of rush awakening, you know, an energy tra transversing the body that has a lot of carries a sense of edge and uh, a sense of also deep meaning. After that, people have uh, uh, that immersive visual quality experience. So they, 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 they go through what some people call this breakthrough DMT experience, which they're no longer seeing, uh, you know, some geometrical patterns, which you encounter with other sort of psychedelic drugs but they're now breaking through into what seems like different reality or dimension. Uh, this is when you give high enough doses to people. And while they're having this experience of breaking through uh, into this different sort of realm, um, at the same time, the body kind of like goes away into the background. People, while at the beginning had this strong sense of rush in their body, no longer feel their body's present. Some people feel they're having an out-of-body sort of experience, not necessarily looking into their bodies, but in a way feeling that their experience is no longer anchored to their body state. Uh, when, which, when you think about it, is curiously similar to the experience of dreaming. Uh, you're having a very visually engaging experience um, that can have a fantastical character to it, but you're no longer attached to your body uh, and your environmental signals. So it's a detached, it's a virtual reality experience. And then after this, this strong sort of breaking through into the space subsides after a couple of minutes, uh, people start coming back and, and making sense of what happened, integrating the experience, if you will. And in that integration, emotional content starts to arise. Um, uh, kind of like taking in the messages that they got from that experience and, and how it reflects in their relationships and their own lives, in their notions of spirituality, in their notions of reality sometimes, um, etc. cetera. Um, so these are some of the features and another, I think, guess, 
uh, within that I kind of mentioned it is that uh, many, when people have high enough doses of NNDMT, they go also, they, they, they can have what is this called the sometimes as this ontological shock uh, reaction or experience is that the experience feels more real than real. It seems to carry some sort of authority in terms of the contents that it's providing the teaching. And that has something to do with the nature of reality. Um, and that can change people's worldviews as well in a, in a significant fashion after the fact. Do people, when they have a DMT experience under controlled conditions, do they, do they normally look back on it in a positive light, in a negative light, a mix of both? Is there any commonality to whether or not people are evaluating the experience as a good one, a bad one, or neutral? It depends very much on the what we call the set the setting, um, the intention people might have, and so on. Um, how well they are prepared psychologically to have that experience. Um, in the context of ayahuasca, uh, DMT is a big part of ayahuasca. It's not the whole thing, but it is a big part of that. In the context of ayahuasca, um, people find, many people find a lot of meaningful experiences in that. And the set and setting of ayahuasca is a, is a, is ca can be a culturally rich setting. There's a lot of songs, there's rituals, um, and it's also a longer experience. Um, and a lot of people find meaning find a positive effect out of that experience. With DMT, when it's given on its own, let's say in a lab setting, like you said, injected, the experience can be very fast and can be a bit overwhelming. So again, depending on the level of preparation that the person has, that can be a satisfying experience. Uh, some people can find it even pleasurable, like in terms of uh, a sensual sort of pleasure that they get out of the experience. Um, uh, many times we've seen that people provide um, a very strong sense of aesthetics, a sense of beauty, of appreciating the beauty of the experience in a way that they hadn't done so for many, many times, for a long time before that. So just the experience of beauty as having uh, an inherently healing quality to some extent. Uh, just a thing that doesn't get talk to very much, which I find particularly interesting. Um, and sometimes challenging experiences. So sometimes people can have overwhelming experiences in which they no longer, they, they struggle, it's not that they struggle with the experience in terms of how did this fit, but it can be scary. The encounters with beings can, can provide a sense of uh, realness uh that is a bit sometimes overwhelming for the person uh nonetheless also in some of those occasions those challenging experiences can be uh fruitful for the person if it's somehow dealt in the right way um but yeah it's 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 varied uh for sure and and very much depending on on the level of readiness that the person has mm -hmm. A little bit later, I want to circle back 
to some of this stuff and at least attempt to think about it from a neuroscientist perspective in terms of what might be going on in the brain that gives rise to these types of experiences. But you mentioned something that people often report for DMT, which is that it's a it's a threshold drug. There's very strong dose-dependent effects, and at some point, the dose gets strong enough that there's uh, a shift in the intensity of the experience, what people call call that breakthrough experience. Approximate, so when you're giving DMT in the lab intravenously, what doses are we talking about here in milligrams for like a normal sized adult? Are we talking about ones of milligrams, tens of milligrams? What is a low dose and what is a, a high dose that would get you past that threshold? So uh, uh, seven milligram of DMT in salt form, so DMT fumarate, it's a low dose, usually provides these experiences of geometrical patterns only. Uh, uh, there can be emotional content, but it's more it's more an interplay of what the person carries to that session and, and these geometrical patterns that form. At 14 milligrams, uh, we consider that a, a medium dose it can have an immersive quality. Um, people are on the verge of that threshold, but still not beyond it, if you will. And at 20 milligrams is where we found a medium to high breakthrough dose that maintained a good um, balance between safety and uh, and still being quite immersive. I mean, we we gave that dose to many people in the fMRI scanner and and we asked for people for intensity ratings while the experience is happening. And uh, for some people, you know, they weren't able to give ratings. Um, so, so it definitely breaks through for many, many people to the point that they're no longer uh, attentive to, you know, what's happening around them. Um, so, so when yeah. you have that breakthrough experience at those higher doses, it is truly immersive in the sense that you can really no longer engage with someone in the room with you. Yeah. Yeah. And you've mentioned already something that also comes up a lot with DMT, which is that it's an endogenous compound. So it's found both in the plant world and in the animal world, apparently, inside of organisms. So starting with plants, can you speak a little bit about how common DMT is in the plant world? What types of plants is it found in? And maybe, you know, if it's really known whether or not uh, we figured out the physiological role that DMT might be serving for the plants. Mm. That's all good questions. I don't have answers for all of them. Um, so the use of DMT, in, um, sorry, the DMT can be found in many, many different plants. Uh, there's some studies saying, saying that it's almost like the, the statement is like DMT is kind of everywhere in, in plants. I mean, it, it shows up in many, many different plants. Uh, not entirely sure what proportion of plants. Uh, to be honest, um, but it is something that it is found in, for example, acacia trees, which are incredibly common um, in most parts of the world. Um, it is um, found in the seeds of the Anadelanthera tree, which is very prominent in South America. So when used as enough, DMT is 
you know the 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 seeds are are smashed and and made into powder. Um, so fairly accessible uh, and fairly common. Now, not all the plants carry the same amount of DMT, and some are better at providing that. In the Amazon, you find it in the Cicotria viridis uh, bush. Um, and again, uh, for it to have a reliable effect in the plant world, it needs to be either smoked or taken in conjunction with a MAO inhibitor, as you mentioned before, so that this enzyme in the gut uh, doesn't destroy DMT. As for the role in plants, uh, we don't know. We don't know what the role of DMT is in plants. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's my understanding as well. That for DMT specifically, you know, a, a physiological function for plants hasn't been worked out. But what's always struck me about DMT and other psychoactives, so everything from caffeine to THC, is you often find these things concentrated in parts of the plant, like sometimes the leaves or the bark or the root bark. Usually, parts of the plant that touch the outside world. And mm -hmm. for other psychoactives, at least, there's some evidence to suggest that these, th these things are generally playing a defensive role. So mm -hmm. they're basically preventing insects or other things from eating the plant. And so I wonder, you know, I would speculate that maybe DMT is, is doing something like that. But, mm -hmm. but I don't think anyone's, I don't, I don't even know how you would exactly study that. <laughs> but it's always been interesting to me that it's concentrated in certain parts of the plant. So what's arguably more interesting that I get asked about more is endogenous DMT in animals, including humans. And my understanding here is that um, it is found endogenously, endogenously, but there's perhaps some uh, conflicting information out there about how prominent it, it is in our tissues, which tissues it's actually found in, and whether or not there's any known endogenous function in animals. So can you talk about where people have actually detected DMT inside animal and human tissues? So they've, as far as I understand, they've detected uh, the precursor of DMT very prominently featured in the lungs. And um, they've investigated as well in the rat's brain. And they found also DMT in the rat brain. Uh, and they've also uh, seen it in human cerebrospinal fluid, so if you will, brain juice. Um, that's also where DMT has been shown up. And based on that uh, sort of set of circumstances, uh, it has been argued that you know DMT is somehow present in the in the human brain, and also and more directly in the rodent's brain. I mean, that has been definitely established. Um, there was a theory uh, by Rick Strassman, who did uh, amazing work with DMT in the 1990s, that DMT was produced by the pineal gland. Now, they found that in rodents that without a pineal gland, they found also still that there was DMT in the, in the brain uh, at an important level. So therefore, uh, we now know that the pineal gland is not a necessary sort of organ uh, for the production of, of DMT. And when they detect DMT in, in rat brains, for example, mm -hmm. 
what levels are we talking about here? Is this tiny, tiny levels that suggest that maybe it's just a kind of metabolic byproduct? Or is it at levels high enough where it could, in theory, be doing something biologically relevant? So that is an ongoing discussion and experiments are happening to determine that. So um, at the University of Michigan, they recently published a paper in which they found increased levels of NNDMT in the rat's brain. Uh, and what, I, what I've seen from that paper is that levels are fairly comparable to serotonin, which is one of the major neurotransmitters in the, the human brain. Um, that, however, has been debated. Mm. Um, the exact technicalities of that debate, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but uh, there's technical arguments on how it's been measured and where it's been measured and whether or not that tells us something about the physiological function of, of NNDMT in the, in the mammalian brain. I see. So tell me if this is accurate. It sounds like people have looked for and found DMT in the rat brain. It's definitely there. It's been claimed to be at levels that are high enough where it could, you know, it could be something, you know, something that's playing a biological function, but it's debated. And in humans, we know that it's probably in the nervous system, at least at small levels, because you can find it in cerebral spinal fluid and things like this, but it has not been directly measured at what we would call significant levels in the human brain at this time. Exactly. Okay. So turning a little bit more to DMT in the brain and then eventually getting to some of your work, um, before we get there, I want to talk about the history of DMT research or if, if there really is much history there. So for things like LSD, I think a lot of people know that um, you know, there's actually a lot of research done decades and decades ago in the mid 20th century. And then you know, based on the way things worked out in the US and elsewhere, that research sort of went away. And now we're seeing this kind of resurgence. But there was this somewhat rich literature for some psychedelics going back, you know, decades and decades. Prior to your research in the last, you know, five to 10 years, say, was there much research that had been done with DMT? Had anything been studied historically in terms of DMT and its effects in the brain? Uh, well, DMT, DMT itself, um, there has been research. It, it is similar to the other psychedelics in terms of, it, you know, it had its heyday in the 50s and 60s and even 70s of the DMT. And then it, it went underground uh, for a couple of decades. Um, I guess the early tracings of DMT research can be found in... Uh, ethnobotany and anthropology work with ayahuasca. So in the mid-19th century, Richard Spruce um, was the first one to describe the effects of ayahuasca. Uh, uh, therefore, it plays a crucial role in the story of, of DMT. Uh, then you have the example of uh, Richard Evan Schultz, which is a famous ethnobotanist also describing some of the effects of, of the MT. Um, but I think it really came into strong prominence um, with the beat generation. So William Burroughs uh, 
I don't know if you know the story of, of William Burroughs and this story. He accidentally shot his wife and uh, while he was drunk playing this game, you know, like this crazy kind of dark story, you know, the beat generation. And, um, and he went to the Amazon to somehow looking for a cure for his torment that he was having. Um, and he found ayahuasca, actually Yaje, the Colombian version of the Amazon in ayahuasca. And, and he wrote this, these Yaje letters to Allen Ginsberg. Um, it is very curious in a way because he kind of stumbled upon DMT or ayahuasca and is one of the first people to do so. Uh, so super interesting. And I'd say contemporary to that, the first modern researcher to study DMT, the effects of DMT is, um, Stephen Sara, a Hungarian biochemist in the 50s who wanted to study LSD. He was extremely interested in, in all this work that was coming out in the 50s um, with this compound. But because he was Hungarian, he was you know behind the Iron Curtain. Sandos, the pharmaceutical company that manufactured LSD, uh, denied him access to it. Um, so therefore, he... He was looking for alternatives. He read some of these interesting reports about uh, this nuts that contained DMT in the Amazon, and he synthesized it himself, and he intramuscularly injected DMT at different doses until he finally found something. And he did a lot of experiments. He did experiments also some with a lot of ethics, like, ethically questionable experiments in which he gave DMT to uh, patients with schizophrenia. Uh, he did some EEG work with DMT, so measuring electrodes in the brain, seeing what happens once, once you gave DMT. Um, and he did a lot of research into that. And um, after that, um, there was almost no research with psychedelics, including DMT. And in the 1990s, uh, Rick Strassman, um, in the U.S., uh, the first uh, U.S. researcher to study psychedelics after the prohibition time, uh, he did his first experiments with DMT, with the argument that DMT is very short; it's a short-acting drug, therefore it's very safe. You know, it has a good safety profile, um, and he did this. Um, very interesting experiments with human beings in which he intravenously injected DMT to them and uh, characterized uh, their effects. He wrote a book about it called DMT, the Spirit Molecule, and, and there's also a film about it. And, and in it, you can see the participants of that study telling their story. Um, and after that, there's been no, virtually no work with DMT until our, our studies in the past five years. There's a single exception with a German group um, who actually gave it a shot at giving DMT continuously, um, which is something that we're doing now as well. Giving it continuously, is that what you said? Yeah. So for an extended period of time, like more than exactly. a few minutes. Exactly. So DMT, yeah, the extension of the DMT state. 
So before we get there, one more background question I want to ask, um, and it has to do with like the toxicology of this. So you mentioned Strassman's argument that because it's short acting, it probably has a good safety profile. Has that been fully worked out? What is the toxicology of DMT? Does it cause any toxic effects that have been measured? Uh, at, at normal, reasonable doses, uh, no toxic effects have been found. Uh, so similar to LSD, although not as good as LSD. I mean, the safety profile of LSD is, is excellent. Um, but with DMT, it's, it has a very good safety profile as well, especially considering that it's also an endogenous compound it's mm -hmm. in our body. Uh, our, our bodies somehow know how to deal with DMT, if you will. I see. Um, yeah. So a little bit of research done uh, in the 50s era, then there's a break, and then you have people like Strassman in the 90s studying it, and then there's another break where there's basically very little happening. And then we get to you. So before you actually describe your research, what actually drew you to DMT as the object of your scientific study, and wh why did you choose to, to work on DMT as opposed to psilocybin or something else? Well, DMT uh, was particularly attractive because it induced it induced this very strange experiences, this, this very unique experiences. Um, you know, what we were talking about before, this feeling of breaking through into a different dimension, a different reality, with this ontological shock experience that somehow you're being taught something relating the nature of reality. Um, I thought that those, those were very interesting things that, no work was being done in terms of how it relates to the human brain. So when you're trying to understand mechanisms uh, of experience, the brain is a good place to look at uh, as well. And on the consciousness research side of things, I thought it was particularly good and interesting substance because, because of the fact that it is immersive and short acting. Um, you can see uh, if you have a good brain imaging method like fMRI or like EEG, you can look at how that organism goes into that state and then goes out of it, right? So you can think of a DMT experience as building a reality, building this other dimension. What are the brain mechanisms that allow this feeling of generating a whole different reality? And then what are the mechanisms that change when you go back into your normal sort of state? Mm. Um, so the fact that it's intense and short acting makes it easier to actually watch the brain as you go into that state, but then come back out of it. Exactly. It's like, it's a, it's a way, if you will, to compress a psychedelic experience in a very intense fashion, in a short amount of time and map out what's happening. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about some of the research that you've done the past two years? What exactly did you do and, and how did you guys do it? So when you talk about things like EEG, for example, let's try and explain for people who don't know what that is, how that works at a very basic level. Sure. So um, we've done, we're on our third study now with DMT. Uh, my first DMT study was a... Um, as you say, an EEG study. EEG stands for electroencephalogram. So it picks up electrical activity in the scalp. 
so this uh, yeah, these, these caps that have electrodes and uh, the electrodes capture the actual electrical activity of neurons firing, right? So the, these neurons, when they fire, they generate an electrical current, which is picked up by these sensors. And this gives you a, a, these uh, electrical patterns uh, are then mapped out into different frequencies or, or different brain waves. And this is when people speak about delta waves, theta waves, alpha waves, gamma waves, and so on. Um, so we did our first study on that. Um, we also tested different doses to see, you know, what would be a safe dose to give to people in our next stage. And our next stage was in the scanner. Um, so we did the same thing. Uh, we gave people this dose of uh, DMT while they were in the scanner, we actually did it twice for each person. Uh, and what we're doing now is our continuous infusion DMT experiments, uh, which uh, is, is being uh, done by, by my PhD student as well, uh, Lisa Luan, which we're trying to extend this state in time. And in all of these studies, we are looking at the brain, but also having a very close look at the experience. So we're trying to also use discipline methods to understand uh, these experiences. Uh, the question of the, the issue with BMT and psychedelics is that they're very um, prone to interpretation by the set and setting. Mm -hmm. So the cultural frameworks people have to understand these experiences and how they make meaning out of it, it influences how they report on it. So what we're trying to do is, is approach the experience also from a scientific and disciplined manner, and, and we can have an appropriate level of the description of that so that we can then marry that with brain activity. So you're using things like EEG and fMRI. For people that are unfamiliar, these are non-invasive techniques, so nothing's going into anyone. With EEG, is it safe to say that people are sort of wearing almost like a hairnet that you would that you would wear at night or in the shower but it's just hooked up to wires and these this apparatus is detecting how would you describe exactly what it's detecting so it's detecting large scale sort of global brain activity and we can think about that as waves that have different frequencies almost like if you were looking at the ocean or something there's big waves that kind of roll in and then there's little tiny choppy waves riding on top of that is that a fair description of how eeg works that's a very good description of how eeg works yeah you have patches of neuron when they're working in sync you can detect these these brainwave patterns essentially um yeah and then how is that different from the fMRI scanner that someone physically goes inside of? What, what do those two things show you? How are they different in terms of what they're actually picking up? fMRI is, um, again, as you say, a non-invasive uh, uh, technique uh, to determine brain activity. It measures uh, metabolism in the brain, the consumption of energy in the brain. That is what you're seeing. Uh, and it's picked up by magnets, uh, this massive magnets in the scanner and a very complicated physics. Um, that's how it works. It's, uh, and what fMRI provides 
as a as a measurement it gives you very good spatial resolution so as opposed to as you said in eeg you have this large scale activity which comes up in the form of waves in fmri you can actually look at the metabolism of little bits in the brain so you can it's almost like you can slice the brain in very little cubes which we call voxels and we can determine we can infer brain activity from the activation patterns that we see at each of these little voxels or, or cubes from that we can then determine how networks are operating specific brain networks how strongly they're connected how hyperconnected different brain regions are with the rest of the brain for example mm -hmm. so i'm trying to imagine the setup here you've either got a hairnet on uh, something that looks like a hairnet for eeg for fmri you're physically going into one of those big scanners that people may have seen on tv and you've got an iv in your arm or somewhere that is yep. allowing you guys to administer uh, intravenous dmt one final question before we get to your description of like what's going on in the brain um, not a technical question, but but almost. I can't help myself. Um, <laughs> how much are people moving their body and especially their eyeballs when you give them DMT? And is that impacting how you can interpret these data? Uh, moving their bodies, uh, it varies. Some people are movers. Other people are non-movers. Um, Usually, it's undesirable that people move during an fMRI scan. Um, is what you might call an artifact that introduces noise, not related to brain activity in the measurements. Um, the idea is that inside of the scanner bore, your head needs to be pretty fixed. Um, so it's variable. People move more than usual, uh, for sure. Tend to move more than usual. Um, and if people move too much, then we cannot have them in our analysis um unfortunately that's how it works and the eye rolling thing is not so much of an issue um we cannot detect it directly the eye rolls um because we don't have a a, a specific you know device measuring that in the fmri scanner but with eeg we can somehow infer it from specific electrodes which are on top of the brain so that when the eye are mm. when the eyes are moving they generate also an electrical current which is picked up by these electrodes i see um yeah. so you do the studies you make the measurements how would you summarize what you guys generally see in terms of what's going on in the brain when you're going into when you're immersed in and then when you're coming out of a dmt experience mm. uh we see the brain in terms of brain waves, uh, big waves, little and fast waves. Uh, we see the brain in terms of connectivity, how strongly different networks are connected or how different parts of the brain are hyperconnected, what we'll call global connectivity. And we see things in, in terms of entropy um, or chaos. Uh, so we're able to determine whether or not the brain is acting in a more chaotic fashion or in a more orderly fashion at different time points in different parts of this experience. And so what, is, um, what, is, what does the brain look like 
in terms of its global patterns in the middle of a DMT experience compared to just a resting sober state? What we're seeing is that in terms of brain waves, uh, the DMT approximates more a dream-like state. Uh, so in the dream-like state, there's these low frequencies, this, this slow, big, fat waves, the delta and the theta waves, they dominate more of that experience. We see the similar thing, uh, very similar thing happening with DMT is only when people are very immersed in this experience where these low, big waves start to dominate. Um, so that, that, that's an intriguing finding somehow, that there's a correspondence between the dream state and the DMT state. And we can pick that up in the brain and it also from the experience, it makes sense somehow, you know, this virtual reality kind of experience. Um, we also see that the brain becomes hyper-connected, very globally connected, and that the regions of the brain that becomes globally connected more strongly have to do with those areas which have evolved later uh, for humans. So the neocortex, the prefrontal areas of the brain, uh, and also language-related systems in the brain, They're the systems that generate meaning, those become hyper-connected. Um, and in terms of entropy or chaos, we see that the brain becomes more chaotic, more disordered. Uh, there's a larger repertoire available for brain states now that weren't available before. I see. So out of all of the possible patterns of brain activity that might be available to the brain at any given moment, you tend to see a wider range of those that become present when someone is on DMT compared to when they're just resting at baseline. And you've done some research where you talk about this idea of top-down versus bottom-up activity in the brain and how DMT affects that. Can you explain for everyone what that is and then what DMT does to those two types of, of information flow in the brain? Sure. So this is a way to look at the at the brain from um, from current neuroscience understanding. Uh, so the idea is that the brain operates as a predictive machine. Um, so as a way to save energy, so an economical, as in an economical fashion, as opposed to the brain just being, if you will, a mirror of external reality, just having all the sensory input being processed into this input-output machine, <laughs> the idea would be that the brain would be actively predicting reality, would be actively generating models of the world. And then energy is mostly spent or is now allocated for whenever there are disruptions of those models, of those predictions. Uh, this is what we call predictive processing. It's uh, a, a very attractive theory right now in the neuroscience of how the world operates and how we engage with reality or with the environment from moment to moment. So these predictions, these models, is what we call top-down activity. And these disruptions of the prediction, the, the, the moments in which we learn, is what we call bottom-up activity. 
um, top-down activity, the models dominate our experience. This is what refers to what when some neuroscientists say that our experience of reality is a controlled hallucination. We are always predicting our activity. We're always, our experience is dominated by models rather than by external sensory input. <clears throat> so the idea would be that these top-down models, these predictions, they dominate our everyday experience under DMT these top-down models, which we pick up through traveling waves, backward traveling waves from the front of the brain to the back of the brain, gets uh, very massively disrupted. And instead, bottom-up activity, uh, so these kind of like novel disruptions, these learning opportunities, now come to dominate the way that the brain operates. And we capture these bottom-up activity via forward cortical traveling waves. And how does that compare? So when people say that DMT is very visual and that you see things that are very vivid, on the one hand, you know, people are just giving you a direct report of what they see, apparently, but because you're talking about the subjective effects someone's having, there's always sort of a gap there. You can't go in and, and directly read out what they're seeing. You just have to rely on the reports. So you guys have compared what you see in brain activity of people that have taken DMT to what you see in brain activity when they're awake and they're sober and they're looking at something. So is in what sense would you describe uh, whether or not people are actually having those very visual experiences on DMT? Does it look like the way the brain looks when you're actually looking at things? Yeah, exactly. It does, uh, at least from this comparative fashion. So uh, essentially, we saw that these cortical traveling waves, these signals of top-down and bottom-up activity, uh, the way that they change, meaning that these top-down models get disrupted and this bottom-up activity gets pronounced, is the same kind of change that happens when people are actively looking at photic stimulation, so light stimulation in the eyes uh, that wasn't there before. The difference is that in the case of DMT, people have their eyes closed. We're even having them with eye masks when they're having their experience, but nonetheless, they're having this very vivid sort of experience. And we're seeing that the mechanisms driving that visual experience are probably very much related to these traveling waves, uh, changing top-down models and bottom-up activity in a similar way as uh, it happens when people are looking at flashing lights, photo mm -hmm. stimulation. So in the experiments that you've done, we're using EEG or fMRI to look at the brain when someone has taken DMT. Can you compare and contrast what you see in those experiments to what others have seen when they give someone something like LSD or psilocybin? Are there any, when someone is on any of these classic psychedelics, DMT, psilocybin, LSD, or whatever, are there any themes that emerge, similar types of uh, brain activity that you tend to see across experiments? And then the flip side being, what are the differences in terms of the patterns? So the, the similarities between all of these compounds, so far it seems that the brain um, is that there's hyperconnectivity patterns emerging 
especially in this evolved part of the brain. So the neocortex, the front part of the brain, um, parts of the brain which are related to decision-making, which are related to attentional resources, which are related also to our imaginative capacities, uh, the abilities that we human beings have to build new worlds, to build meaning out of things, to develop tools, those areas become hyper-connected. Uh, and that appears to be somewhat consistent between DMT, LSD, and psilocybin. What seems to be different and unique about DMT is that the brain, these brainwave patterns uh, operate somewhat differently. The big difference is that when people have regular LSD and psilocybin doses, all these brainwave patterns go down. There's like the brainwaves become flat, if you will, most of them. Uh, whereas with DMT, we find that these lower frequencies, this delta and these theta waves, they go up. And that's very similar to what happens during dreaming as well. And that seems to be setting apart DMT from LSD and psilocybin. And when you look at the experiences, the phenomenology, if you want to call it like that, to these different substances, what makes DMT unique is exactly this immersive capacity, this, this feeling that people have that they're entering a novel dimension, entering an, uh, sort of like a, yeah, a, a new reality of sorts. And so you mentioned before that some of the ongoing research you're doing has to do with these extended DMT experiences. So can you walk people through what kind of questions you're asking for those? And when you say an extended experience, how extended are we talking about? Um, so we're extending that state for 30 minutes at the time. Um, so we're giving what you call a bolus. So the initial push that we give it in our other studies. Mm -hmm. And then one minute after that, we maintain a, a, steady, a steady state uh, throughout 30 minutes. And what is, what is the dose that you're targeting for that? Uh, we're using very similar doses to the one that I mentioned before. So uh, something in low threshold, a mid threshold, and a high threshold. And we're figuring out those doses as we're going along with the study. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, in a safe fashion. And before we get to the scientific questions that you're exploring, I feel like I have to ask, how are you recruiting people for this? And what kind of people are volunteering for the 30-minute DMT fMRI scan? <laughs> well, a lot of volunteers. People are really excited about this research. Uh, a lot of people are, have been very generous, you know, wanting to provide their time and being very courageous as well, uh, trying to be a part of it. Um, we have word of mouth recruitment. Mm -hmm. So when people know about our studies, they contact us and, and if it's feasible and, you know, accessible and interesting, then we recruit them. Um, we have also interesting, interested scientists who want to be part of the process sometimes and, but really, it's, it's a very, very group. Um, 
And how many people are we talking about for these studies? Is it a handful? Is it dozens? For this one, we're projecting, uh, I think, 30. Yeah, we have 30 in our maximum. So we're, we're aiming for 30 people. A group of them have repeated doses of, of DMT. And what are the basic questions that you're hoping to answer with the current research? We're trying to, if you will, develop a technology. We're trying to figure out whether or not you can extend DMT and if that extension is reliable. Um, we're trying to understand, to, to extend that state so that people can take more out of that experience, understand it better, and then report back to us what's, what's actually going, you know, going on. Uh, we're trying to determine the nature of the entity experience. Uh, trying to understand what are their structural features. We're trying to understand if they always have this sort of like extraordinary quality to them or can these entity experiences be somewhat more commonsensical, if you will, more of the common world. Mm. Um, we're trying to see if, um, you know, this immersive quality persists over time or does it come in waves as other psychedelics? Mm. Uh, we're trying to understand all these things, but we're doing that while we're capturing high density EEG activity. So we're now wearing a very techie uh, cap with uh, hundreds of electrodes. And, uh, and that will give us a very nice understanding of where exactly things are happening in the brain, what are the specific areas that are being disrupted and how this compares to the, to the kind of experiences people are having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the fact that DMT is degraded so quickly by our bodies and therefore that the experience is so short, there's almost perhaps no chance for the brain to adapt to the experience. And I can imagine that certainly one possibility would be that in a 30-minute DMT administration where you have continuous intravenous DMT, perhaps there is some sort of uh, wave-like quality to it where you know the networks in the brain that are changed in response to DMT are then a they have enough time to sort of adapt and rebound in some way. And so that would, if that was true, then I, I suspect that in a 30 minute experience, you would not simply have one uniform 30 minute DMT trip, but somehow, somehow it would change over the course of that 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the things that we were trying to figure out whether or not the, you know, it is really a fixed thing or is it a wavy thing or mm -hmm. it's a, it's an inter interesting challenge for the organism to be in that state for such a long time. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I do want to ask about too is it has to do with the potential therapeutic applications for DMT in particular, but also in comparison to other psychedelics. And one of the things I want to explore is there are some some healthy tensions in the research world about what we want and what we don't want or what might be useful and not useful in terms of the therapeutic effects of psychedelics. One of those tensions is prolonged experience versus short experience. And you sort of implied by what you said that, you know, on the one hand, people would say the prolonged experience you get with something like psilocybin or especially LSD 
you know, it's obviously a very powerful experience and that's been documented, that's been studied, but it's also inconvenient in many ways, right? You can't, it's not easy to scale up the administration of something that, you know, requires a 10 hour supervised trip to get some potential therapeutic benefits. So there's a lot of interest in compressing down that time and, and conveniently, perhaps something like DMT has this natural short duration. And yet the flip side of that, as you alluded, is that these short but intense DMT experiences are hard for people to grok. They come back and they have a hard time remembering what happened. They have a hard time uh, you know, taking any lessons or potential therapeutic benefit out of that. And so you're almost going in the opposite direction and extending the short duration experience a little bit. Do you think there's a happy medium there? And, and then the other thing I want to touch on that I think is hard to disentangle from that is the psychedelic experience per se, the perceptual distortions and the hallucinatory component of this. There's a lot of effort happening right now around essentially engineering non-psychedelic psychedelics with the idea being that we can extract most or all of the therapeutic benefit, but actually get rid of the actual psychedelic effects. Can you sort of talk about your, your view on those things? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that the I think that there's inherent value in, in long experiences on, on, on their own. I don't know if for every sort of condition or, or every sort of human need related to psychedelics, those long experiences are relevant. Um, I think that indeed the short acting psychedelics provide an opportunity to somehow have variable opportunities for variable needs in psychiatry and in mental health and in well-being and human development. And I think, uh, you know, different things might help for different people. I find it interesting to explore a middle ground extending that short experience because one, it seems that the short DMT experience is not sufficient for the main sort of mental health conditions we're interested in, like for example, depression. You do need to be there a bit longer. As you alluded on your second comment, a lot of the evidence suggests that it, it is the quality of the experience, so the degree to which people have these mystical type experiences, which predicts the therapeutic outcomes. Um, therefore, having a sufficiently long experience in which people are able to have the experience and at the same time make, make meaning out of it while it is happening appears to be a very fundamental and crucial thing mechanism for this to work uh, therefore a sufficiently long experience might be needed and dmt might be too short for a mass sort of uh, administration of this uh, mass administration in clinical settings if you will mm -hmm. um so i think the that's one element. The other element, which I find particularly relevant, is that uh, we're entering our world of personalized medicine mm. um, more and more. So uh, one size fits all kind of approach no longer works. Um, the human mind is very complex and is very much determined by the unique history of those individuals and their unique genetics. A genetical makeup. Um, I imagine the possibility in which 
if we are able to extend that DMT state and develop its come up, the steepness of the come up, if you will, the depth of that come up uh, and the duration of that plateau and then the way that it comes down according to those individual needs, then we have a very powerful tool in our hands, uh, something that is able to adapt to the needs of mm -hmm. the specific individual. Again, not just necessarily for a medical condition, it could be also part of well-being or human development more, more mm -hmm. broadly. Um, I actually never, I never thought about that. So with something like psilocybin, you hear all of these powerful stories. One of my last podcast episodes was with, was with this guy named John Kostakopoulos who described his psilocybin experiences in a clinical trial. Um, but these last for hours and you can't, there's no off switch, right? The, the doctor can't truncate the experience, but what you're essentially describing with DMT is if you can extend the experience, you can also turn it off. So at any point you could simply stop giving it IV and you could almost have a, I think what you're saying is you can almost have like a personalized experience where if you, if you understand what's going on sufficiently well, you could prolong or truncate the experience based on what you're reading out from the person, whether or not they need to keep going or not. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's a, a good example of how personalized, you know, it could work. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's incredibly exciting for that, for that reason as well. Uh, the idea of personalizing a dose, personalizing an experience. It's interesting because, you know, probably you've heard of this like set setting, set and setting is, is a major feature of psychedelic experiences, the, how the context and our personal histories influence. Uh, but the full story is set setting and dose, set mm -hmm. setting and substance itself. There's a pharmacological part of the story, which is also fundamental, which is also crucial. Uh, there's been studies showing that it's actually those, the one that can better predict the outcomes rather than any other set and setting variable. So although set and setting is fundamental and very important, um, perfecting um, the administration is a big part of the story. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's part of what we're trying to do. And finally, <coughs> to talk to your other uh, question, on the, whether or not these... Um, subjective effects are necessary for these therapeutic outcomes. Uh, the idea that uh, there, there's this idea of trying to figure out if you take the psychedelic component out of psychedelics, weirdly enough, um, is able to have a, a therapeutic benefit. I am of the thinking, based on the evidence, that it is needed, that the, the, that the psychedelic effects are needed for therapeutic action. And this has been a finding that has been replicated by a few labs already in a few different studies with depression, with tobacco addiction, mm -hmm. with um, anxiety related to terminal illnesses. It is these mystical type experiences, this emotional breakthrough experiences, which uh, appear to very strongly predict the positive therapeutic outcomes. I see. So you're um, saying that in, in some of the studies that are out there with psilocybin, for example, the strength of the effect in terms of its effect on you know, whether it's end-of-life anxiety or depression or addiction correlates very strongly with the intensity of the actual psychedelic experience. 
Yeah. So the the therapeutic effects, right? So the the efficacy, if you will, is related to the strength of of the subjective experiences people have. Mm-hmm. That being said, I find it a very interesting scientific challenge yeah. to figure out what are the kind of changes that would happen in the system without these psychedelic effects. Mm-hmm. So for example, if there's plasticity being induced, yeah, yeah. What what does it mean? Uh you know, how can we think of something therapeutic that is not inducing plasticity or induces plasticity but it's not working with the subjective effects. Mm-hmm. And again, this is my my feeling is that experience serves as a as a way to direct plasticity. Mm-hmm. So you have a substance that is able to generate this brain plasticity mechanism, so the ability to, to, for the change to have a transformational effect. But the direction of that transformational effect is mediated by experience, is mediated by set and setting. Mm-hmm. That, so, that's my intuition. Yeah, so the I, I pretty much share that intuition. And I think the idea here is the word plasticity is often used in a sort of vague way and it's often used as if it's like plasticity is good like inherently good but plasticity if you just sort of make the brain more plastic that doesn't necessarily mean anything therapeutic is going to happen you have to actually use that window of plasticity to build or unbuild something in the brain Um, and the plasticity is merely a permissive thing it's not a directive thing as you said so i generally share that perspective, one of the things I wanted to ask you about too has to do with plasticity. And this will take me a minute to explain. And I don't think you're going to have an answer to it. Um, but I want to I want to get you talking about this in case you have any interesting ideas or you've or at least hear if you've heard what I have heard. So before I describe the anecdotal part, when we think about like drugs and plasticity for people that don't have a background in this, in general, as a rule of thumb, something that is very short acting is sitting at the receptor for a short amount of time in the brain. And there is a small or very little plasticity that tends to be induced from that, that outlasts the actual drug. So for example, DMT is short acting. It doesn't sit at the receptor long. I would speculate that you know mechanisms of cellular plasticity probably aren't as strong as you see with drugs like psilocybin and LSD. So if LSD, for example, is sitting in a receptor for hours and hours and hours, it's probably engaging cellular mechanisms that have that window of plasticity that outlasts the drug um, for for much longer than they would for something short-acting like DMT as a general rule of thumb. So that's the first thing I wanted to say by way of background. The second thing that I've observed and that I've been told anecdotally, which I think is very interesting, has to do with the difference between DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. So I want to describe that and then maybe ask if you've seen anything akin to this in your studies. With DMT, you have these very vivid immersive experiences. They're very intense and short-lasting. You can take the compound over and over again sequentially, and there isn't much adaptation to it, probably because It's not sitting at that receptor for a long time. And I've never heard anyone that I know who's had a DMT experience report what you might call a flashback or a reactivation. So no one that I've ever talked to 
has you know done DMT and then come back the next day or the next week and say, oh my gosh, I you know I was in yoga class or I was sleeping at night and I basically had another DMT experience in the absence of taking DMT again. With 5-MeO-DMT, I have robustly observed that effect where despite the fact that it's relatively short acting, although a little bit longer than DMT, and despite the fact that it's of comparable intensity perhaps, but a different quality, I've had many people report that they reactivate, meaning the next day or for a number of days after ingesting 5-MeO, they are having experiences that are, you know, maybe not the full experience, but very, very close to that. And that would imply, if that is in fact a robust finding, and I don't think it's been studied scientifically or formally, but that would imply that 5-MeO-DMT and DMT are having a different level of uh, long-term plasticity induced. And having a compound that's short-acting, but also induces long-term plasticity, uh, is very interesting. And so I guess my question for you, besides just commenting generally on what you just heard, is have you observed in your studies with DMT any of your subjects reporting sort of dropping back into the experience in the absence of the drug after the study? My guess is you probably have not heard that a lot. No, no, we have not. Um, it has not happened that we have that, you know, strong reactivation as, as, as some people get with 5-MeO DMT. Um, but I think, I mean, I don't know how much the specifics of the pharmacokinetics or the pharmacodynamics have to do with that in terms of how much the, the, the molecule is sitting in, in the receptor. Um, because, uh, I mean, it could be, could have a, a direct relationship, but it could mm -hmm. also be an indirect relationship in the sense that it could be that 5-MeO-DMT is acting on a central mechanism, which is more prone to plasticity compared to NMDMT. So these functional changes in the brain can be very impactful. And if they're impactful enough, they will, you know, generate uh, structural changes, which is what we refer to when we talk about plasticity. Uh, structural change, uh, the way, literal way that the shape of certain brain parts is shifted. Um, I think it's very hard for me to, to, to give a straight answer because we don't have data for that. You know, mm -hmm. like whether or not what differentiates that it's how much the molecule sits at the receptor site. Um, but I will say that whenever we speak about transformational effects with psychedelics, we speak about long-term effects that are there after the, also after the drug has left the system. And these transformational effects, um, uh, at the psychological level, when we speak about that, we speak about mental health, we speak about changes in personality. We, we could think about also changes in beliefs. A uh, big part of the work that I'm about to publish soon has to do with uh, you know, how your metaphysical beliefs or how your beliefs about the nature of reality change after a single experience. Mm -hmm. And that can happen by an acute experience, an acute flash 
mm. you know, similar to what happens when people have near-death experiences. They, they have a very significant experience that changes their outlook in life. And I think it's reasonable to argue that there could be also a plasticity correlate of that. Mm -hmm. The brain also might change on some degree, on some level. So I'm not entirely sure whether or not the sitting at the receptor site is, is the key mechanism, but that's a hypothesis that could be tested in a lab. Mm -hmm. Are there any other labs out there doing research on DMT or 5-MeO-DMT right now? And if so, what are the basic questions that are being asked today? I think there is a... There's more and more. I know that there's one in Basel, which is doing some, I think they're also doing some DMT extended infusions. Um, I think the University of Yale is doing some experiments with DMT. They're more focused on, so the Basel people are probably more focused, I would presume, on basic pharmacological understandings, uh, you know, hormone levels. Um, yeah, basic uh, molecular mechanisms and so on. Uh, the people at Yale, I think, are more involved in consciousness research, uh, similar to us to a certain extent. Um, apart from that, I don't know much of any. I know that there are some also some actual uh, industri the commercial endeavors to study DMT for therapeutic purposes. Mm -hmm. So, so there is other research happening, but it's still relatively sparse. Yeah. And how did you, how did you actually get into this area to begin with? Did you start studying psychedelics and DMT in your postdoc, or were you already studying this in graduate school? How did you actually sort of journey into this research space? Mm. So I'm a psychologist by training, very interested always in the human mind. Um, I'm also from South America. Uh, specifically from Chile. Um, in South America, there is a, an interesting relationship with psychoactive compounds and, a, and the history and the culture around it and the way that it's still permeating to this day, uh, influencing the culture. Um, at least the, the interface between indigenous and Western cultures or traditions is a very interesting one. And it's, and it's a mix, which is very much alive to this day. Uh, so I was very, always very interested in drugs, always very interested in how drugs change the mind and how drugs provide workings into the human mind somehow. It provides clues. Um, the idea that you can manipulate mind through drugs, I find to this day very fascinating, is a way to change our experience of reality uh, through a very chemical uh, sort of like nature and a very, you know, nature-based biological way of understanding it. So it's a super interesting interface between mind and life, mind and matter. Um, so I did my first degree in psychology. I then did my master's in neuroscience. And I did that when I was living in Italy. And when I was there, I found out about this conference here happening in London, which is called Breaking Convention. And that was in 2013. And um, I came to this conference and, and 
met my colleagues of today and I did a PhD on it and that's how I got in. Essentially, I, I, I yeah, I went to a conference and uh, found out all the amazing work that, this was a time before Michael Pollan wrote his book. Mm. So this crazy wave that's happening now was kind of building up but it certainly wasn't at the level that it is. So it, it was an interesting time in which it was still fairly underground and it was rising, but it was discreetly rising. Mm -hmm. so, so that book was, was that influential? You, you actually saw, you saw the effects in the research world. Well, the, yeah, I mean, I was doing my PhD when that book came out, mm -hmm. I did my PhD on DMT. So, so I, it was in my graduate work when I got, uh, straightforwardly and into psychedelics, uh, and it changed everything. Like it, it's um, it's you know it's a cultural impact. Nowadays, you have retreat centers all around in many places of the world doing this semi legally or completely legal, and many of their clients are newcomers, if you want, to the field who have read this book. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. for people that are interested in having an experience with a psychedelic like DMT or like psilocybin or something else, assuming that they have safe and legal access to it somewhere, wherever they might be interested in taking it. Do you have any general advice beyond the generic advice that's sort of out there in popular culture for how people should prepare for these types of experiences or, or whether or not, how, how they should decide whether or not it might be appropriate for them? From a harm reduction perspective, um, uh, the usual, the, the usual sort of like um, advice is to uh, one form very well about what might be going on, what could happen during an experience, look into sites that provide good information about that harm reduction specific sites are good. Uh, so we have, for example, drug science here in the UK, which, which provides very good information on that. Um, and then the next big advice apart from information is uh, whatever sort of experience people are having that they have it with somebody who knows what that experience is about and is a trustworthy person to do that with um any sort of mechanism of accountability if something goes wrong i think is important and i think it's one of the positive things about legalization uh in some places is that you know facilitators need to be held accountable to a certain extent of what might go wrong and if something goes wrong you know so any sort of facilitator uh that will guide through that experience that they have a screening process so they make sure that you should or you should not have that experience for example mm -hmm. um uh any any facilitator who is very explicit about 
what can happen during a session, what cannot happen during a session. Mm-hmm. It's crucially important, uh, you know, minimum of ethical standards. Um, and that, that's, that is what comes to mind uh, at, at, at this point. So anyone who's facilitating an experience like this that is not screening people in and out with some set of criteria and who's not advertising potential adverse outcomes, that would be a, a red flag. I would say broadly speaking, yes. Um, I think that the, it, I mean, the, the real crucial elements on the safety aspects of psychedelics, all the risks are psychological, but the real crucial element is the interpersonal element. Is, is who is guiding that session, who is uh, providing a container for that experience, which can have challenging psychological moments to be dealt in the right way. Mm-hmm. And before we let you get back to the lab, are there any final thoughts that you want to leave people with about this general area or about your research and where it's going? Um, I think... I think we're entering interesting times in which um, the use of psychedelics is becoming very mainstream. I think that might be an opportunity uh, for change, for needed change on the way that we look at the world. We don't know if that will be the case. I think some people are hopeful of that. I would say in general that... um, you know, it's to remark that the use of classic, like classic psychedelics have a good safety profile in terms of physiological effects, but it's at the level of, it's at the psychological level, at the level of experience where things become a bit more tricky, a bit more nuanced. And I find that the better we are at developing cultural spaces, cultural devices, integration groups for people to have to talk about their experiences that might be challenging, uh, generating instances for good, skillful guidance, um, the development of therapists and facilitators and so on, uh, are all for the better, you know, are, are the good things. I would say in general, the best way for people to approach this is to engage via community to these experiences. Uh, because it's this interpersonal factor which is so important for the for the outcomes to be safe and beneficial. Um, so I would say, yeah, don't take it lightly. You know, take it with respect and um, and and try to engage with it from many different levels, not just a simple level, not just a simple level of pleasure or fun, uh, but also maybe you know intellectual level trying to figure out what's happening you know inform oneself about the experience or the risks behind the experience uh and so on so yeah that, that would be my i guess my my general message uh things think about it with setting setting in mind with context in mind with history in mind all right well chris timmerman thank you for your time i uh, really appreciate it i had a lot of fun talking to you and have a good day Well, thank you, Nick, for having me.